Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. And welcome to IRC Book Club, the show where every week Michael and I read a sales book, talk about it, and then people come in, chip in, and say things. If you like what you're listening to, do us a favor, make sure you hit like and share if you see this on a social media platform, or better still, just put a post on LinkedIn yourself saying how great we are. Today, and you write the book. You can talk about the book, really. Yeah, and me and Mike. I'm not bothered, just talk about Johnny, it's fine. Mike's very humble. I'm less, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm less so. <laughs> so we're on right. the Challenger sale, Johnny. Yeah, we're on our second show on the Challenger sale, aren't we? Yeah, now now to a bit of controversy, actually, I, I uh, took a picture of this book, you know, when I was talking about Book Club and put it on LinkedIn. Um, there are other social media platforms, and I gave it a 6 out of 10. Uh, and I guess we'll get into, you know, why we've said that, really. Yeah, it's scoring less for me. Well, we're on. Chapter five, teaching for differentiation, part two, page 65, blah, blah, blah. It goes, frankly, this isn't so much about delivering a formal presentation as about telling a compelling story. I thought, oh, Johnny's going to love that. Yeah, I mean, we'll come to my thoughts on this as time cracks on. So what they're effectively saying is that the art of the challenger is to teach to tailor and to take control of the sale. And what they're effectively refuting is the art of need discovery. They're saying that that's done, and we've talked about it in the last show. They're saying that the real, the challenger, which are the stars of the show, or as they were back in 2010 when they wrote the book, uh, the stars of the show are the ones that teach, tailor, and take control why? Because they're telling the customer something they didn't already know, and the customer already kind of knows what their needs are. What they're saying is the challenger tells the customer stuff they didn't know and explains to them pain they didn't realise they Can had. I pick up on something you said? Because you're absolutely right about the book. <clears throat> What's interesting is on the front page, Neil Racker, author of Spin Selling, said it's the most important advancing selling for many years. And actually, he was one of the greatest proponents of asking questions. And yeah, discovery. you know, he, he's right behind it, isn't he? And I, mm, mm. I, I would love to talk to CEB just about the depth of rigour of the data. Well, they say um, it's fairly detailed, but they're bound to say that. Yes, and we've had a couple of other books on the show <clears throat> where people have claimed rigour in their data and others have then subsequently contacted us to aggressively debunk. Yeah, they didn't do it on LinkedIn, though, did they? Um, no, they've not done it in public. They've not been, done it publicly. Doing so. I'm just going to turn something off in my room. Let's hope it's camera. <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> so, teaching for differentiation. This isn't so much about delivering a formal presentation. It's about telling a compelling story, as you've already mentioned. And what they're talking about is the five phases of the teaching story. Intrigued or four phases, intrigued, drowning, involved, and relieved. And the and the, the teacher starts with a warmer where he builds credibility or she 
builds credibility by reading the customers' minds and demonstrating empathy, reframes uh, unrecognized problems, needs, or assumptions, takes the customer into rational drowning, gradual intensification of the problem, both in degree and closeness to the customer, then breaks down the problem into emotional impact, psychological features of the problem or presence in the individual's workflow, humanizing the problem, and then builds back the customer's confidence in a new solution. So what they're saying is you've got to take the customer on a bit of a journey rather than going in and they keep using this phrase, what's keeping you up at night? Well, I'm glad you've said that. I'm going to interrupt you there because what they actually say is rather than asking what's keeping, what's keeping you, up, keeping at you night, up at night, blah, 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 you, we've worked with a number that, of companies yeah. similar to yours and we found that these three challenges come up again and again. Now, I actually think that 100% on the money because it's interesting. When you talk to salespeople and I say, you know, how do you do it or whatever the question is, the bad ones go, well, I just sit in front of the client and ask them what's keeping them up at night. And I sit there and think, no, you don't. You have no. never said that and lasted more than one minute in a sales meeting, ever. No, nobody actually says the words, what's keeping you up at night. But a lot of people will claim to say that. A lot of people will claim to pitch in and go, what's your biggest business problem? Nobody asked that. Nobody's <laughs> successful asked that, I don't think. No one. No, because it... It's just I, the world's... I, 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 I'll tell you my question. first thought is if you to tell a story, you need to be invited. Yes, you're right. It's not in the context of this book. So let's just assume that's the case. No, but I think you're missing something here, Mike. To to even if you firstly you've got to be invited to turn up. Yeah, yeah. Somehow you've got to get in the room. This book doesn't talk about that. Well, that's fine. It, it doesn't, it doesn't suggest it and well. And that's not in its purview. Fair enough. But if I'm walking into the room to start telling a story where it, it, where it doesn't bring me and I found a bit frustrating as I was reading it is, how do I get an invitation to start telling my story? Yeah, but in fairness, it's not covered in this book. But it should be because I think a lot of people will, so what you, because I think the way the book is presenting itself is salesman X walks into meeting, meeting starts salesman starts telling it, just starts doing his pitch. It does say that. Yes, I agree. And I, I think a lot of people just get turfed on their asses in that. Yeah, it I, lacks, it, I think it lacks a bit of context. And uh, what we've seen a lot of the debate on LinkedIn was, uh, 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 on posts we've put out about this show, a lot of people have said that the concept of the challenger has been grossly misinterpreted. I, I think and, I actually think the title's misleading, really. Yes, I do because it it. it well, a lot of people have said, basically, people, as I pointed out to a guy the other day, and he thought I was great, was uh, I said, let's get it right. A lot of people who refer to themselves as challenger salespeople have walked past the book at WH Smith's on the shelf at King's Cross on the way home, thought, yeah, that's me. I'm a challenger. Not bought the book, gone home and started challenging customers. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of machismo in sales, isn't there? Particularly with male salespeople. I'm a hunter, I'm a challenger, blah 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 Yeah, and then what they're talking about in the, in the first phase of this teaching process is, is to basically read the mind of the customer. It's to assume that you know what the customer's problem is. And I've thought, okay, I, I get that, because is it better than asking a customer questions about needs that he's probably been through with three other salespeople and that he already probably knows anyway? I get that. But my question is, is that not going to piss a few people off? I think it's a balance, isn't it, personally? 
Do, do you know what's interesting? So I spoke to a, a client recently who'd had a bit of a turnover of salespeople. And he reached out to me, this guy. Let's get, be clear, I'd hounded the hell out of him. Yeah. <laughs> and, in the end, and in the end, he reached out to me. And we got talking. And I said, listen, when I, when I look at your business and look at your people on LinkedIn, you've got quite a few people who look like they've lasted a year. And I notice that you've been using a different recruitment model. You've been using an internal recruiter. I can, and I can only assume that the reason that you're actually talking to me now is that there's a straw that's broken a camel's back somewhere where you've thought, oh, damn it, right, I'm actually going to give this guy a call. And I said, why is that? And he said, do you know what, Mike? He said, you're quite close, but not quite there. And because I was quite close, I think that was good enough. You were in the ballpark. Yeah, and I think the book should sort of say that. It should say, listen, I'm going to tell you a story about some work I did with another client they're obviously a different client with a slightly different set of needs, but how close is this to what your pain is? And I think if you worded it that way with a prospect, I think you're going to get a much warmer response than as the book suggests, pitched up going, yeah, I know everything about you, this is your problem. Because I think that is too much of a risky gambling strategy, really. Yeah. It, it, you're in the hunt, aren't you, then, with a semi-mind read? Yeah, you okay. got to say, listen, I can't read your mind, but I've read I've read your company reports. I, I think this might be an issue for you. Talk, I'm talk wondering to me about if, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then they talk about rational drowning, where you lay out the business case why the reframing. Step two is oh, they, I miss reframing. Um, and I'll tell you what I have thought about this process. I did think, could we run a sales sequence that takes? I thought as an experiment, could we run a sales sequence that takes a customer? five-step sales sequence that goes from warmer to reframe to emotional to, to rational drowning to emotional impact to a new way to our solution hard to, hard, hard to run a hard to run an email sequence to do that i think you think don't think it'd work as a sequence i think it would if people read it but we're on a slightly separate subject topic there yeah you're not getting that it's only a small percentage that would go through the entire engagement process so. of, of all of all six stages by yeah i think it suits somebody that's engaged with you a little yes and you're in the room okay so then we talk about the reframe the central moment of a commercial teaching pitch you must now introduce a new perspective that connects the challenges to either a bigger problem or a bigger opportunity than they ever realized they had mind you you're not expected to actually come up with the insight in the moment and again, they sort of start to talk a little bit more about uh, marketing's involvement. And I did write here, so show me some real examples. And I didn't feel in the examples that they've provided that they gave those str that strong an example of a reframe, really. Um, and then they talk about rational drowning. Marketers often refer to this as the FUD factor, where the customers sat there going, wow, I had no idea we were wasting that much money. And then you talk about the emotional impact. I see what you're saying. Not quite rational drowning, Johnny. You know, we sold for a little while. You did it a little longer than I, but uh, legal software. Yep. And you'd go, how much money did you lose by not, how much, you know, lawyers are all about billing time. So you'd sort of go, you're losing time by doing this. Uh, you're losing time by doing this. You're not recording time, you're doing that. And you'd get your calculation sheet out and all of a sudden they'd lost, you know, 60% more time well, than they had like, billed. Because actually... Where I did really well with that was with an enormous reframe. 
and it was only when I did an enormous reframe that I got some success with that product. My reframe was that the lawyers weren't in the legal profession, that actually they were selling time for money. I remember, and it always surprised me that that surprised them. And he used to say, listen, you're not in the legal business. You, what you do is you sell time for money and you've got a supermarket full of six minute time units and your time units are falling off the shelf like eggs in a supermarket. So you've got shrinkage like a supermarket manager. And this is how we're going to reduce your shrinkage. And, they, and they'd sit there and they'd go, what? And I'd say, well, in a supermarket, let's walk through a supermarket now. Stuff goes off because nobody knows it's going off. Stuff falls off the shelf and spoils on the floor. Stuff gets nicked. So part of being a good supermarket manager is reducing your shrinkage. I said, part of being a good legal business owner is reducing that. And I said, what if we could reduce it? And then they go, well, what are you on about? But it would be such a different way of thinking about it rather than walking in and going, let's do a workflow for employment law. So actually, yeah. to be fair, a reframe can be very, very powerful, getting people to think about it in a different way. That's true of a lot. That's true of most sales. I, I think that, that is less so with the SaaS kids on phones, BDR, puppy dog sale. Uh, yeah, I mean, you and I had a long chat yesterday about certain business process issues. Um, and I was doing some exploration on that last night. The vendors I'm looking at aren't reframing. No, they're saying there's a product, you want it? Now, there's, there's page 77. For me, Ooh, there's you're a, skipping ahead. I'm skipping ahead. I mean, I think it's good, don't get me wrong. I've read it all and taken notes that I can talk to you about if you want, but I'm conscious of time as much as anything because... You know, we've been talking for ages now, and you know what I'm like, Johnny. I'm like the Ernest Hemingway of sales. Um, I think so. So, page 77, there's a really important section here. It says, A critical lesson of the challenger approach is the significant yeah. need for organizational involvement to make it truly sustainable and not just the result of incidental sales rep excellent. Few My but note. the very best of the reps could pull off this kind of teaching on their own consistently over time. And that I highlighted is, the same line, Mike. And literally, that is where the book loses four out of its 10 points. Well, I wrote here, i.e. a critical flaw of yeah. the manager approach. And, and just to be clear, what, what, what we said last week, and I'm going to reiterate it again, is, is the challenger sale a good approach? Yes, I think it is, actually. Um, but it really, really depends on the whole organization being involved, marketing, need to have a challenger message yeah pre-sales need to have a I challenger agree. message and i also sales think, do Luke, i also made a note just on page 76 they talk about having a punchline that brings the whole thing together i think a lot of companies in our market don't have a punchline completely agree somebody somebody i don't know I've who just, it was i've just placed a fellow with a with a company that are an aws partner they've not got a punchline well, one of my top low-code companies, what's their punchline? How much work do I do with them? You've no idea what their punchline is. They don't go on, full stop, that's it. But just getting back to this point for a minute, I think it's really important. When I put six out of 10, put it on LinkedIn, whatever, a guy that is a good guy, don't get me wrong, I know him fairly well. He went, no, nah, you're wrong, Mike, it's 10 out of 10, that. And I didn't reply on LinkedIn, I sent it him an IM. And I said, there is no way given the companies you have worked for, that you can give that book a 10 out of 10. Because this guy is a salesman on an island. He has no help from marketing. He has no real help from pre-sales. I doubt the MD ever gets involved. And if your company isn't going to swallow the whole book, then actually the book loses loads of its potency, I think. Just loads and Agreed. loads and loads. But I think it's even further than that. 
uh, I think you're missing my point about having a punchline completely, I'm afraid, Mike. Um, I'm not worried. <laughs> it, it is they're, what they're referring to as a punchline is this sort of significant source of differentiation. You know, you're saying that client that you've got doesn't have a punchline. They do. They've got great sources of differentiation. I'm talking about how many of the clients that we deal with and how many companies that we know of in the sector. They're not really differentiable. You know, what do you do? Well, we're an AWS partner. All right. How are you different from everyone else? Well, we're not really. We're just better than them. Right. Okay. But how do you differentiate yourself? Differentiate yourself. Well, we're, we're a better AWS partner than the AWS partner down the street. So it's not applicable for everybody. And like you say, I think there are specific criteria. One, if you're a smaller business, you're going to have to really buy into it. And you're going to have to buy into it in a very deep, very big way. And if you're a bigger business, it's a lot easier to buy into it because you can just sort of shuffle people around and say to marketing, yeah, let's build some challenger level material and go through the process and put marketing and sales in a room, create a working group, yada, 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 yada. But I think you're absolutely right. The buy-in has to be immense to create a true challenger business model. Yes, you're right. And it's a challenger business model. It is not a challenger sale. Yes, I concur. I think that's a very distinct point. Yeah. Um, and I've written, will it work in every environment? Probably not. I just put just not an applicable model in a small business. Well, I think, I don't know, I think it's more applicable. It's about the company buying, isn't it? The question that, you know, we have a book club with people is sometimes people will say, what's your top five books? Which one should I buy? Blah, blah, blah. This is just isn't going to make it into those top five. Not going to make it in my top 10. No. Anyway, no we can con let, let's continue. Um, I don't know what page you're make, on. I'm on page 81. Make sure your teaching pitch is bold. Yeah, okay. It must be risky. <laughs> I question the extent to which a lot of the people we work with are comfortable making risky, bold statements in meetings. And yeah, I the, mean, I, the extent I, to which I they're risky and bold people. I, th I think I think the book is full of Daily Mirror headlines. Actually, bold <laughs> statements get, get made by bold people. You and I, I'm yeah. really cool with being bold. I'm as bold as it gets, but I know plenty of people who are damn good salespeople who are not bold and will never make an overwhelmingly bold statement to a customer, but they, they seem to do okay. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then we get into the case studies, and I, I, they lost me a little bit with the case I studies. I find them really boring, the case studies. Well, I get the point, you know, this Granger thing, they've sort of... Yeah, I've read it. Granger are, they sell hammers and stuff. And... Um, <laughs> are they, is it not Ox Power Tools? Well, no, a fair play. The point they've made is they've, Granger have had a, and it's a great example of where an organisation has come together, put together a, a pitch deck, and they've reframed very cleverly that actually you're not just buying hammers offers, you're buying the avoided lost opportunity cost of randomly buying hammers. Um, and you can see how that would be a compelling pitch to a company spending multi-millions of pounds on Hammers and stuff. And yeah, I, I get it. Uh, again, though, my first thought was, brilliant, Granger, a multi-billion dollar company, desperately looking for a source of differentiation. What if they got to lose by throwing a couple of hundred thousand pounds, half a million pounds worth of time at building a challenger sales model and piloting it to see if it works? 
It's a little bit like me. I'm doing a campaign at the moment. I may be testing every email in it. Great. But have we got the time to completely rebuild and pilot test a completely separate, different sales model right now? No. Because we're a smaller business. Whereas oh. Granger are a multi-billion dollar business. Now, we do have the agility to do that. So we do have an advantage over Granger. But to build that kind of material and then make it homogenous and cohesive across the sales force, that's expensive. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, then they talked about this ADP dealer services example where they were doing these profit clinic seminars. Genuine question to our listeners. Do people still go to seminars? Well, this was written pre-COVID. COVID's changed the world, hasn't it? No, but people do, do people go to online seminars? I did on Tuesday, actually. Did you? On what? Low-code and no-code development. Is it any good? It's fascinating, yeah. It was really good. It, it, it was an MD of a company that I've known for ages. And I was just chatting with him a bit on LinkedIn. He went, oh, I've got a seminar here that you might be interested in. Watched it. An hour later, he phoned me and said he was looking for a senior sales guy. <laughs> so I think he was just testing me to see to whether see if I was you were actually... seriously committed yeah. to the industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, but you, actually, well you were. It, I am, yeah. But actually, it was fairly interesting anyway. And then we're into tailoring for resonance. The key to generating widespread support. Influencers place much more emphasis on the individual rep selling to them. End users don't think of themselves as buying from organizations. They buy from people. So what is it about the people they interact with that makes them more likely to be loyal? And then they make this point. More traditional selling skills like needs analysis are much further down the list when it comes to driving end user and influencer loyalty. So while sales organizations continue to pour time and money into helping reps to ask better, more incisive questions, these skills prove to be much more weakly associated with loyalties. Customers aren't looking for reps to anticipate or discover needs they already know they have, but rather to teach them about opportunities to make or save money that they didn't even know were possible. Fair enough. And they talk about the new physics of sales, about uh, actually the real key is not gaining decision-maker buy-in, but is actually all about gaining widespread support across the organization. And I kind of get that, actually. Um, you and I have debated on this show a few times. Do you have a Do you have? Is the client your client, or is the organisation your client? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to make of this because I can see both sides as to why it's right and to why it's wrong. I do have one client actually, um, and they talk about building consensus and all that kind of stuff. Um, and and I have one client where the guy is a very successful guy. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And we just got talking about how, you know how to sell and what um, uh, and really I asked him that because I want to know what kind of salespeople he wants. And he said, I tell you what, I tell you what, a lot of salespeople make the mistake of Mike. He said they get too many people involved in the sale. He said I just don't get involved in that. I try and keep the buying group as narrow as possible. Yeah. Because then I find it goes more quickly. And he sort of books the trend that they have here. I'm not saying this is wrong. Uh, I concur. But he's very successful. I wrote here, a lot of people don't think like that with a number on their back. Yeah. A lot. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I'm going to gain widespread support across the organization. I think there's plenty of very successful salesmen walking around with nice Rolexes and fast Range Rovers right now who don't give a monkeys about widespread support across an organization because they work in quarterly and annually driven target environments where actually all they're really bothered about is getting the number done for this year. Um, they get whatever support they need to get a deal done, and then they worry about the next deal thereafter. 
Yeah, completely agree. Uh, and it, it's nice. It's a nice thought. Oh, yeah, we're really well supported in this business. That is a nice thought. And that's, in many respects, for me, I think that's what customer success teams are there for. Get a so, deal in. Mm. Get a deal in. Make the, make, make the customers happy. Yada, yada. Um, and then, then they page, talk about... Page 104, the key to generating widespread support. Um, and it's got this graph. Boy, I'm miles ahead of you. Well, this is important, though. It's got this graph, right, on page 104. And the figure is figure 6.2. And it says, as you look at look at figure 6.2, you'll notice that the biggest driver of end-user and influence loyalty is the rep's professionalism. May well be right, but I wanted I would have wanted him to say, right, define professionalism. professionalism. What do professional people actually do? Because <laughs> if it's the most important the, I, thing... I cannot stand the word professional. Most people just don't understand what it means. Well, it all means different things to different people, doesn't it? Yeah. That's the big, big problem. It's just a very nebulous phrase, really. Well, it means winning and losing pay to me. Playing for money. That's professional. Professional well, golfers play golf for money. Professional uh, boxers box for money. Yeah, but for others, it would say professionalism is certification, wouldn't it? A doctor would say that they are professional. I'm a professional person, yeah. I'm yeah, a, one yeah. of the professions. A lawyer would say that, you know, all the rest of it. And that's... And then you're going to get plenty of professional people. So the window cleaner that cleans that that cleans our windows comes once a month. On his van, he's got professional window cleaner. Now, in fairness well, he, to him, he cleans windows for money. I'm in. Yeah, yeah. And in <laughs> fairness, to, and in fairness to him, um, he was our old window cleaner. We moved three miles. Did it was off his. Re- it was off his round, and we said, "Listen, I, 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 would you come and clean our windows?" Because he's he's excellent. This guy, the guy that paints my house. I mean, you know him. He's a professional painter and decorator. Yes, actually, he is. He bumped into him in the street and said, is he a professional guy? He'd go, no, just some scruffy guy that's got paint all over his trousers and uses 22 letters in the alphabet. But actually, he's a professional guy. Yes, it's his craft. Hmm. So anyway. And he's proud of his work. So yeah, different things. It means different things to different people. Uh, and it's a real bugbear for me, the word professional. Yeah, and I was surprised they didn't go into what is professionalism, given it's the most important thing. Yeah. Um, and then they talk about reducing variability. What page are you on? I'm on page 111. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, they talk about uh, uh, this whole thing. Uh, here you go. Marketing can add a tremendous amount of value by simply, simply helping sales reps to tailor at the industry and company levels. There are so many sources of information and many of them free that can aid a rep in offering or at very least some industry and company context to the sales pitch. And what they're talking about is helping the reps tailor their pitch. Da, 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 da. Um, and I, I sort of got a little bit frustrated with this particular chapter, and I've got a couple of thoughts. I've thought, this all seems to be about marketing. And I wrote, imagine a sales guy joins a little company. Let's just say it's a little data science app company, right? It's like a little company. They do an app that's got some sort of data science application. And he walks and he says, right, boss, Boss says, what's, what are you doing in your first week in the job? He says, well, today I'm going to design messages around um, data science and I'm just going to spend the whole week creating a challenger pitch deck. What do you think? Um, uh, that goes back to the interview process around expectation, doesn't it? Yeah, okay. You know, really, I say it's a lot of time to candidates. to go, is the job right for me, Mike? I, say, I have no idea. Why don't you ask the client if the job's right for you? And the candidates will go, well, what do you mean? Say, so, well, 
ask what their expectation of what you need to do is. And if your expectation is in line with theirs, then it's a good match. So if you've yeah, right. done your interview process correctly, then yeah. But, you know, by and large, I, I agree with, you know, where you're getting at, which is not many people are going to be that happy with it. They're going to go, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where are my and, then they, and then they make this point, challenger reps aren't focused on what they're selling, but on what the person they're, tr- they're speaking to is trying to accomplish. Now, I get that. I think that's right. But actually... And they talk about an example they give here is decreasing the number of clicks it takes to find customers on our website as something that somebody's trying to accomplish. I 100% disagree with that. Totally. And I'll tell you my thought process. I don't think any buyer cares about decreasing the number of clicks on a website. I think what they care about is impressing their boss. And they care about impressing their boss because they want a promotion. And they care about getting a promotion because they want a 10K pay rise. And they care about getting a 10K pay rise because it gets them a bigger house. And they care about getting a bigger house because they want to start a family. And they care about starting a family because they want to fit in with their peers. And I think they're really, by trying to be clever about this teach, tailor, take control thing, I think they're really missing the emotional element behind why and the human element behind why people give buy-in to products. I think it's an enormous miss monumental and for me it just completely rubbishes the whole book because people don't buy five nobody sits at home thinking oh if only i could get five percent more clicks on the website there's no no nobody in any job that anybody sells to thinks that way what they think is how that affects them at a human level and this book completely misses and negates that fair enough in and, and therefore for me I'm a Miller-Hyman guy because at least Miller-Hyman gets into wins and results. What's the win and what? Uh, what's the result and what's the win? Yeah, How I'm not going to dispute that. Uh, so, it's a fair point. It, 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 that's my bit. They've really lost me here now because I just think, you're missing the fundamental art of selling, which is understanding why. What? And yeah, okay, you don't want to get into needs and all that. Brilliant, but. Um, for me, I think they've, they've created some examples here of tailoring messages, it's, and I've put here, it's better than not tailoring the message, but it isn't tailoring. Tailoring is getting deep into the mind of each stakeholder and understanding the bigger chunk of why they're doing what they're doing. And I think the really top sales guys, they don't sell 5% clicks on the website. They sell the new house and the family. And that's what real selling is all about. Uh, and so... That that was my loss anyway. Then they talk yeah, about making, ta- making tailoring happen. And then that's us for the week, really. The, the next bit is we're on taking control of the sale. And again, I think we'll probably find next week it's a, a shorter show because it gets us straight through the book. Yeah, um, and I mean, I end. obviously want people to listen to the show, but I've got to tell you, the next two parts of this book, seven and eight are poor. Oh, really? I thought they were really poor, yeah. I've not read that far yet. Right, well, here's something to... I'm going to help you with your motivation level here, Johnny. <laughs> you're, going to teach, you're going to teach me. No, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's garbage the next two bits. Right. Well, maybe we should put it to our audience as to whether we actually do a show on it or whether we move on to a new book next week. I th- well, I don't know. I've read it, so I want you to read it because I don't want to... You want <laughs> me to go get... through the pain, do you? Of, yeah, uh, yeah. An I mean, hour and a half of my life I'll never get back. Yeah, so we've sort of got to read it. What, what book are we going to do after this one? I don't know. I think we need to make some announcements on that one. Another classic, I think. 
another big one. I mean, this has been this is probably the biggest title but, we've ever covered, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I'm gutted I, it, with it. I'm gutted with it. It's a big title. Like I say, the the the, the reason that they sold that book is because of the title. Are you like a loser or are you a challenger? I'm a challenger. I'm going to buy that book. Yeah. That's what happened. It was beautifully marketed. It became vernacular, didn't it, at the time? Yeah. I remember lots of people, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013. Yeah. How do you say I'm a challenger? People don't talk about it as much now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's interesting when you put the post on LinkedIn about you know, whatever, yeah. all the lefties come out the tr- woodwork, the don't they? <laughs> you know what I mean? The lefties all drinking their hippie tea. I drink hippie tea, but all drinking their hippie tea going, yes, I think it's immoral to pitch a client. They've got to come to me. <laughs> so there's going to be one like that somewhere, isn't it? That I'm not well, going to read it. I think that the, what's been fascinating is how the extent to which selling has really changed in the last few years. Yeah, for some people, for some Uh, folks. What's happening is you're getting two distinct groups, some who think it's good to sell, some who think it's a bit crass to sell. A bit beneath them. Yes. Now I think the still in sales. I think the formal will win, actually, but we will see. Yes, we will. And at that, we bid you adieu. We'll see you next week where we will cover part three of the Challenger sale. Hopefully, Mike's wrong and we'll get something really exciting. Hope so. Bye.